The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until 7 o'clock this evening. And the Sinn Fein TD Owen O'Brien is my guest this week for the Thursday interview. And as I said previously, most recently, when Michal Martin was with me, I mean, if you're looking for the usual punch and Judy kind of political uh, affair. This isn't it. Um, it is something different. So, Owen, listen, thanks a million for coming into studio and no joining us. Um, who were the four men? So the four men were four boys. Um, uh, myself, a guy called Simon, a guy called Gavin, a guy called John. And we were a kind of a, a secondary school band is the best way to describe it in the mid to late 80s. But unlike a lot of secondary school bands, we did quite a lot of professional performing. So we would have been a kind of a very well-regarded support act. We would have supported bands like Something Happens in the SFX in the 80s. And probably the biggest gig we ever did was we supported Rory Gallagher in the Mean Fiddler Rock Country and Blues Festival in London, 88 or 89. Um, So while we were a bunch of school kids, um, we were probably school kids that if we had all wanted to could have ended up being professional musicians, but we didn't. What did you play in the band? So I was the bass guitar player um, and I sang and three of us, myself, Simon and John, John was a bit older, he was in college. The three of us, myself, Simon and Gavin, were all still in school, fifth and sixth year. Um, uh, We all, myself, John and Simon, wrote songs and sang. Now the word sang is a loose definition of what we did. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting there, is it? Mm, Probably, yeah. (laughs) Um, But it was a band that had a lot of kind of energy. Simon was a big Beatles fan, John was a kind of rock and R&B fan and I was into an obscure kind of version of rockabilly and punk called psychabilly. So if you can merge those three things together. So, yeah, so give me an example, maybe compare your the sound of the foreman to somebody else. If you kind of took the Beatles, added punk rock and some amphetamines, <laughs> hard, fast, fun music was what it was. Was there amphetamines involved? There weren't, we were far too young. Oh yeah, okay. Um, so you were still in school at this stage. Did you finish, did you do the leave insert? So, um, much to my mother's great um, distress, I went into the first exam, which from memory was maths. Uh, I sat the obligatory half an hour because you weren't allowed to leave. Yeah. I wrote nothing um, and then left. And the principal uh, of BlackRock at the time, very kind of decent man, caught me on my way out and dragged me into the office and, you know, gave in very stern terms, told him I was wasting my life and I really had yeah. to get it together. So with that, I left and it didn't return to any of the exams. So no, I didn't sit it um, and therefore I didn't get... And what, why? What was your thinking at the time? I was lazy. Um, well, I, I was lazy in the following sense. Um, we would have been doing gigs two, three nights a week. We had our own residency in the Henry Grattan Bar, which is uh, on Capel Street, the first bar on the left that has a different name now. Um, I would have been so absorbed in music, in art, in theatre, in drama. I used to write what I called plays. Clearly looking back, they weren't pieces of theatre, but that's what I thought they were at the time. And I had a mother who was just... Oh, very, were you a pretentious young lad? The very opposite, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, the very opposite. But <laughs> I had a mother who was very accommodating, much to, again, to her own distress. She's dead 10 years now, but uh, uh, um, she tolerated a lot of that. And she kind of took the view, which is, if I really enjoyed something, let me do it. Mm-hmm. So kind of from fifth year, there would have been a sense from from the teachers that, um, yeah, sure, Owen isn't going to be an academic or a professional, but he should get the grades. Whereas yeah. my view was, I'm so interested in this other stuff, I just didn't have the time. Like I remember the, the, the period before the Leaving Cert, it was a beautiful like early summer um, 
and we lived in Leopardstown at the time. And I remember just sitting at the back reading books, reading nothing to do with the Leaving Cert. Yeah. No worry or bother about it. So it, it, it was just, I was kind of focused somewhere else. I was doing other stuff. Um, and therefore I wasn't lazy in the music or in that stuff. I was doing huge amounts of stuff there. But it just, school didn't interest me. Yeah. So what was the ambition? I mean, that summer when people asked you, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? Was it music still? No, no? in fact, I had no ambitions. Um, okay. And I, I, I didn't really look past the kind of moment. So, for example, at some point at the end of the 80s, um, uh, there were two offers that would have allowed me to become a professional musician. One was the foreman, um, one of the father, the father of one of the band members uh, who knew very little about music, but knew people who did know about music, yeah. made an offer that he would bankroll the band at a very modest level for three years. Okay. A record contract during that period. We were on our own. If not, he would cut the funding. And I said no to that. Um, and at the same time, I was one of a group of buskers in Grafton Street, along with McChristopher and Mark Dignam and, and the O'Snuddigs and Dave Odlum and Glenn Hansard. And Glenn started to do some gigs of his own. He then got a... His mum, from memory, took out a more second mortgage on the house or a credit union loan for a kitchen extension. Yeah. Funded Glenn to go into a studio. He got a backing band from a band called Blue in Heaven at the time. They recorded this three-track demo. He then got a publishing deal with the son of Denny Cordell, the very famous yeah. 1960s music empresario. Denny's son, I think, worked for Island Records. Um, and Glenn came to a number of us to ask us, would we be in what became The Frames? Yeah. Um, so uh, Dave Odlum was one of the buskers. He asked him to be the guitar player. Colin McAnumra, a good old pal. Fiddle player, he asked him to be the fiddle player and they asked me to be the bass player. And I, I turned that down. And they were within a few months yeah. of each other. Uh, and a very good friend of ours because Glenn was like, well, who's going to play bass now? And there was a guy called John Carney who wasn't part of the busking crew. He played uh, a more uh, uh, um, kind of popular kind of music, um, a kind of a funk bass. But I knew John well and was part of introducing John to Glenn. He became, yeah. of course, the Frames bass player and John went on to become the famous filmmaker, yeah. uh, including of Once with Glenn, etc. So uh, I could have been possibly a professional musician. And do you ever think about that? I, I don't, other than it, it was incredible to have that opportunity. Um, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I'd never any ambitions to be a professional musician. I don't regret it in any way. Yeah. And I, I stay in touch with a lot of the folks from that time because I'm, I'm still hugely interested in music. I spend a lot of money and time uh, listening to, uh, buying and uh, attending gigs and, and concerts and, and records. Uh, and I kind of continue playing music myself a little bit until my mid-twenties, um, but stopped then. But I'm kind of an obsessive person, so I'm kind of, you, you just do that. Yeah. Or you don't do it. And at various stages, people say, would you not play a bit of music? And I'd like, I wouldn't be able to give it the time to be as good as you would want to be. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm not an amateur by personality. Yeah. Um, so I don't regret it at all, but it was a wonderful time. Like I remember beautiful summers, 89, 90, on Grafton Street outside what was the old O'Connell's fish shop. Um, Grafton Street used to yeah. have a fish shop back in the day when Irish people ate fish. Um, and, you know, Busking wasn't the thing it is today, but there would be 20 of us, really talented musicians, like people who are long forgotten. And we'd have crowds of 100 people sat yeah. out in the sun listening to the music. And the busking today is wonderful, but it's much more professionalised and it has sound systems. And there was a kind of a, a thing at that moment which was just quite special. So to be part of that, even yeah. a very peripheral part of that, was was pretty cool. The, when you say you're obsessive, I mean, it... it 
it betrays maybe a, a competitive streak as well. You know, competitive people would describe themselves the same way. I can't, I can't do things. If I'm going to do something, I want to make sure that I can do it to the absolute best of my ability. Like, are, are you competitive? The very opposite. If, okay. If I'm on your table in a table quiz, I'm likely to be given the answers to the table next. Oh, Spirit no, of equity. Can't so be having that. I'm not neither competitive nor ambitious, but I, I, I presume, or I probably would describe it as driven. So. If I get into something, I get really into it. Okay. Um, if you were to talk to Lynn, my partner, she'd tell you, know, every so often I have a new obsession, I, whether it's a music style or a particular area of so what's, Give us reading. a sense, the latest. What's the latest so for, for example, music style? Um, uh, I'm not a big soul fan, okay. right? So Motown and, yeah. uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Stax Records and all that stuff. I never listened to any of that growing up. But I kind of decided recently, do you know what, I really need to know about that. So all I've been doing for about a month outside of work and, and reading is I'm reading all of the histories of soul. A guy called Stuart Clark, I think is his name, a Scottish journalist, has written three incredible books around 68, 69 and 70 around the different movements of soul in Harlem, Detroit and Memphis. And when I'm reading those books, all I'm listening to is all of the soul music. And of course, mm. uh, by the end of the month, Lynn is desperate for me to find a new obsession and to move on. I had it up with <laughs> reggae a while back. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I think before that it was garage rock um, so it just I, I, I have this incredible I've always had this incredible thirst to, to know stuff yeah. right so like I was saying to you before the, the, the show whenever I go on holidays we go for two weeks yeah. somewhere kind of warm and far away and without yeah. internet coverage with some friends over the summer I pick a subject right just any subject yeah. and I buy five, six, seven books on the subject I just love getting immersed in stuff, knowing yeah. it, understanding it. Uh, not in any competitive way, I just, that that's the way my brain works, I suppose. Yeah. Every so often it's really good just to really understand something. And like, I, I read very little fiction, so most of what I read is non-fiction. Mm. And all non-fiction books have a perspective, right? Yeah. So again, you know, one, one particular holiday, it was the British Labour Party. I lived in England for, for five years in London. I was an affiliate member of the British Labour Party, would you believe, through my trade union membership, uh, well, I worked in the catering industry. Um, I have a lot of Who's friends. Who's leader of the party then? So Kinnock. Oh, yeah, And in okay. fact, the, the very first election I voted in was for uh, local election candidates in the area I lived in for the Labour Party. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who would be on the left of the Labour Party, momentum people, supporters of Corbyn when he was the leader of the party, people I would have become good friends with when I was in university in England. So I decided, you know, I was going to read all about the British Labour Party. And like, none of those books give you the overview. So if you want to get a good grounded sense of it, and I really like reading stuff from writers I fundamentally disagree with. So yeah. I'm not one of those people who just reads the, yeah. you know, it's not just the confirmation bias. In fact, sometimes the stuff I really enjoy is the stuff that infuriates me at every page. But it gets you thinking, it gets you challenging yourself, it gets you to understand it better. So I do a bit of both. So if people are just uh, tuning in, Ono Brain, the Sinn Féin TD is with me for the Thursday interview uh, today. Um, when, now looking back, would you say you kind of had your political awakening? So there was no one moment. It was a kind of a gradual thing. I mean, in some senses, I grew up in middle class South County Dublin. No politics among my peer group, no politics among the, the, the that group of musicians. Mm. Um, but there kind of was an anti-establishment thing about it. When I look back at it, Jimmy, yeah. that was not consciously, not in a kind of pretentious sense, but just that's where we were. Um, I moved to London. Uh, I got work in catering. I went to school. I did A-levels in a, in a comprehensive in South East London. I went to Polytechnic, it became a university. And during that period of time, two things happened. One, I got a sense of being Irish, because of course there I was as yeah. a, a paddy in London. 
uh, and it was the tail end of the Birmingham Six, the Prevention of Terrorism Act. You still had the IRA's bombing campaign and Hook's bombing campaign at the time. And I had no real knowledge or political awareness around those things, but that was mm. the environment you were in. And also as an Irish student, you were meeting all sorts of other folks from Ireland, North and South of all political persuasions. I was going to student conferences and you would have had civil rights and civil liberties organisations from the North. And so a mixture of that getting a sense of your Irishness, being Irish living in London. Uh, I went to, as it happened by accident, a very left-wing comprehensive and then a very left-wing university in East London um, and in uh, West London. Um, so I kind of started to engage and meet young people and teachers and, and mm. books from a variety of kind of progressive anti-colonial perspectives. And then also they were pretty important years in terms of the emergence of the peace process. So yeah. I was in London when the ceasefire was called. I would have been reading on Fublock re regularly then. I wouldn't have been a, a committed Sinn Féin supporter at that point. But all of those experiences led me to decide around about the point of time when I was going back to Ireland in early to mid-95, I'd finished college uh, and was returning home. At that stage, I'd kind of taken the decision to join Sinn Féin. Yeah. And then very quickly afterwards, kind of September 95, moved to Belfast where I lived for 11 and years. And why Sinn Féin? Again, I don't do want this to go into a kind of political over and back, but just say, why Sinn Féin? I suppose, looking back on it, because sometimes you can reread your own history yeah. in a way to suit a narrative, and I don't want to do that, but I think a mixture of a growing sense of national awareness, but in a progressive sense, in a broad-minded sense, and a sense of pride in being Irish, living in London, with all of the complexities of what that means, coupled with kind of a left-leaning, albeit undeveloped attitude. And then the more I read about Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin's analysis of the causes of conflict and the kind of peace strategizing around that time. Yeah. Those three things seemed to click together in a way that naturally led me. So for me, it didn't seem like a big thing Yeah. until I came home and all of a sudden my peer group, the folks I grew up with in South County Dublin were kind of looking at me like I had two heads. Yeah. Even my own family were a bit nervous about it at the time because keep in mind, I was attending coming meetings in Ballybrack and the special branch would be outside when you went in, they'd be outside when you came out. When I get back to my flat in Monkstown, the special branch would be there. We were organising protest activity and you'd be experiencing, relatively speaking, minor levels of harassment or intimidation from the special branch. I mean, famously, when I was the organiser of Sinn Féin Youth in 97 and we had a big congress in Dublin um, and there was a train of folks coming from Belfast up as part of the Saoirse Release All Political Prisoners mm -hmm. campaign. I have to, and actually I have the photographs to prove it, but these very big special branch guys and they knew I was the organiser. I was mm -hmm. quite a young, softly spoken individual kind of leaning over you, deliberately stepping on your toes, kind of, you know, asking what's a nice boy like you doing, hanging out yeah. with a, a bunch of folks like these. So there, there was a sense in which, to me, it seemed logical to people who hadn't gone through that kind of experience yeah. and journey I'd done. It really jarred. And for a period of time when I used to come home, because I lived in Belfast all during the Celtic Tiger, right? And I wouldn't have retained a very large number of friends from the South, a few long-standing friends. But when you'd bump into people in the street or and they'd be asking, what are you doing now? And you'd tell them, like, for particularly for middle-class young folks, it was a real jarring culture shock that somebody from their environment would end up where I ended up. Yeah. But to me, it just seemed the natural place for me to be. And um, what... I'm sure that, that, that the, the questions they would have asked, they would have asked you questions about violence and IRA violence. And, but, and maybe this is a difficult thing to recollect after so many years. Can you remember what your views were at the time 
when when you began to think about these things. And as you said, we're tail end of kind of Birmingham State, Guildford for all of that, all those kind of miscarriages of justice um, had come to light at that stage. That was kind of 74, 75 they happened. Was it? Anyway, miscarriages of justice and all had come to light then by the 80s. Um, like, what was your view? And I, again, this isn't going to turn into please condemn the following no, atrocities. No, I, I, I'll be very honest with you. My, even before I was in, involved in politics, my instinctive way of being in the world is is to avoid conflict and confrontation. Mm. Um, I'm one of those people who, if there's a row, I'm the person trying to get everybody to sit down and talk about it and, and, and agree it. So in that sense, I've never been somebody who would say, I think violence is a good thing from, from whatever quarter comes from. But I suppose what struck me during that period, and you need to remember, I'm in a polytechnic in East London. All mm. my teachers are from South Africa, Zimbabwe. They're anti-colonial activists. There's a, a, a kind of a, a climate in which considerations of these issues yeah. are taken in their political, colonial and anti-colonial context. And there's a language and vocabulary around resistance to that and popular struggle and yeah. all. And then I'm confronted with this real life stuff, right? And I suppose for me... Joining Sinn Féin was never about do I support or oppose the IRA. Genuinely, that was, yeah. that was never in my head. But what attracted me to Sinn Féin was they were the only party who were saying it's not just about saying whether you're for or against violence. It's asking a very reasonable question, which is what are the social, economic, political causes of conflict? Because yeah. if you want to end conflict, you have to address those causes. And, you know, people like Jerry Adams, people like Martin McGuinness, people like Mitchell McLaughlin. Uh, but also I remember... You know, one of the, the events I remember as having a really important influence on me was attending a political debate in the Camden Irish Centre. Mm. And Alec Maskey was there, and this was before I was a supporter of Sinn Féin, and Bernadette McAlisky was there. And Bernadette McAlisky just made such a compelling argument for the focus has to be on there are causes of conflict in yeah. any set of circumstances. You don't have to believe violence is right or wrong to say, let's deal with the causes. Let's yeah. deal with the underlying problems. And therefore, for me... Membership of Sinn Féin doesn't in and of itself declare a position on, on armed struggle or violence. Mm. It, it's about, for me, and increasingly for more and more activists who joined the party in the years after yeah. I would have joined, around saying, how do you bring a conflict to end? How do you tackle the social and economic causes? And that's not to be glib about violence. I lived in North Belfast. right? I lived on an interface. I lived in the part of the North which saw the largest number of fatalities during the course of the conflict, people killed by the IRA, other Republican paramilitaries, by the UDA, UVF, British Army and RUC. Uh, I worked with people, uh, not only as constituents of mine when I was elected, uh, who had suffered at the hands of Br British armed forces or loyalist paramilitaries, but also people who'd suffered at the hands of the IRA. So I have an acute awareness of violence and the discussions of it aren't some academic thing. Mm. Right? People's lives were destroyed. Families' lives were destroyed. The way I always answer the question is, like, I think any Sinn Féin activist, of course you would have preferred if there was no violence. Of course you would have preferred if there hadn't been a conflict. Of course you would have preferred if that conflict could have been brought to an end earlier. But history teaches us that it's not just about condemning violence, and that's a legitimate position for people to take. It's about fixing the problems that give rise to it. And I think history has borne that analysis yeah. out because we have made substantial progress in addressing the cause of conflict. It's not without problems, but... You know, uh, uh, um, uh, Emma Pengali and and uh, Michelle O'Neill, I think, yeah. are evidence of the fact that fixing the problems is actually what sustains long-term peace and reconciliation. I know I'm being told to wrap up here, so I'm going to get in trouble for asking another question. Uh, how, in your mind, do you differentiate healthy nationalism from a toxic nationalism? Very, very simply, I describe myself as a cosmopolitan nationalist. Um, it, it's a nationalism which is about being proud of who you are 
uh, but who you are is open to all sorts of influences. I, I, I like explaining this by virtue of a music analogy. Uh, I got very interested in Irish trad music and Bothy Band and yeah. Banksy and that when I lived in London. My favourite instrument in trad is the bazooki. Okay. Bazooki is an Irish instrument. It's Greek and 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 uh, Middle European, Middle Eastern, and yet it's a vital ingredient of Irish culture. And I think what cosmopolitan nationalism is about is saying that we have a traditional past. Uh, as that pa- traditional culture interacts with other influences, it grows and changes. It incorporates, and that means, for example, for me, some of the best Irish music is music produced by either new Irish communities, people whose parents are from mm. Africa or from Asia or from elsewhere. Uh, folks from Ireland who are exploring other cultural traditions from other places. And therefore, your culture is never closed. It's never ossified. It's always open. It's always welcoming. It's always generous. And cultures aren't static. They evolve. So I think the problem with conservative nationalism, xenophobic nationalism, is it tries to think of Irish culture as discrete, separate, and cordoned off from all other cultures. That's not how culture works. And that's why I think music is the best way of understanding this. Hip-hop can be as Irish as trat. Soul can be as Irish as folk music and as ballads. And in fact, some of the best music we hear at the minute, like Lancome, right? Yeah. The cutting edge of Irish traditional music. And yet its influences are from grunge and post-punk all over the world. Like, Lancome is my, you know, kind of uh, uh, um, badge of or emblem of progressive cosmopolitan nationalism. And I think if people who call themselves nationalist get around that idea... yeah then actually all of a sudden it's something really good. I'm proud to be Irish. Are we better than anybody else? No, we're not. Are we different from other groups of people in the world? Yes, we are. But are we also influenced by those people through our uh, uh, migratory patterns living abroad uh, and our openness to people coming from cultures uh, abroad to here? We are enriched by that. And that's the difference. And that's why I think a progressive nationalism, a cosmopolitan Mm. nationalism, is the best antidote to the xenophobic right-wing nationalism, which thankfully continues to have a small, although growing mm. role in Irish culture. Owen O'Brien, Sinn Féin TD. Owen, thanks a million for joining us for the Thursday interview. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.